0: Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I am delighted to talk to Dr. William Lane Craig. You are most welcome, sir. Thank you, Paul. Uh, For those who don't know, if there are any people uh, out there, Dr. Craig is an American analytic philosopher and Christian apologist. He is a visiting scholar of philosophy at the Talbot School of Theology and professor of philosophy at Houston Baptist University. Dr. Craig is probably the most prolific and well-known defender of a Kalam cosmological argument for the existence of God. This argument was originally formulated by the famous Muslim theologian and philosopher Al-Khazali, who died in AD 1111. But it has acquired a new lease of life thanks entirely to Dr. Craig's celebrated and prolific defense of the argument. Today, Dr. Craig has kindly agreed to discuss two subjects. Firstly, he will outline for us the Kalam cosmological argument for the existence of God and look perhaps at some of the objections that have been advanced against it. And secondly, we will discuss his latest book on his quest for the historical Adam. This is the first human being in the light of scripture, Christian scripture and modern science. So, Dr. Craig, to start with, could you outline for us the historical origin of a Kalam cosmological argument and what form the argument takes? Certainly. The argument originated
1: in the attempts of early Christian commentators on Aristotle to refute Aristotle's doctrine of the eternity of the world. Aristotle believed that God and the universe were Mm co-eternal, and because of their commitment to the biblical doctrine of creation, certain early Christian commentators uh, devised very clever and sophisticated arguments against the past eternity of the universe. One of the most important of these was named John Philoponus, who died in the 5th century. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this tradition was absorbed by Islam when Islam swept across Egypt uh, and Alexandria where Philoponus was active. And it became the centerpiece of uh, Islamic um, philosophy uh, and natural theology. And Mm -hmm. as you say, it was developed into very sophisticated forms by someone like al-Khazali, who was actually the heir to several centuries of tradition. So it's an argument that has a great intersectarian appeal. It's been propounded uh, by Jews, by Muslims, by Christians, both Catholic and Protestant. As for the formulation of the argument, Ghazali's formulation is perhaps the simplest and most accessible. It goes like this. Premise one is that everything is that begins to exist has a cause of its beginning. Premise two is that the universe began to exist, and from that you can conclude three, therefore the universe has a cause of its beginning. And then you do a conceptual analysis of what it is to be a cause of the universe, and several theologically striking properties of this uncaused first cause. Emerge from such an analysis. The argument, I think, is successful, proves the existence of a beginning last, uncaused, immaterial, changeless, spaceless, uh, time last, personal uh, creator of the universe who is unimaginably powerful.
0: Well, that, that, that's very helpful. But Looking at premise one there, uh, and and there have been, I've noticed in in looking uh, into this in a little bit of detail that every statement of the cosmological argument, the kind of generic uh, label for all the variants that we see, including the Kalam cosmological argument, Mm -hmm. that they have been countered by others and then counter statements have been made and everything is contested. But one of the, I think, one of the more interesting. Objections to premise one of your uh, argument as you formulate it, whatever begins to exist has a cause. And a common objection appeals to the phenomenon of what's called quantum indeterminacy. This is in, in physics, obviously in quantum mechanics, where at a subatomic level, the causal principle, everything that begins to exist has a cause, appears to break down. Things apparently just come out of, come into existence out of nothing, almost ex nihilo. And there's a a famous propounder of this, um, uh, Lawrence Krauss, the Canadian American physicist and cosmologist in his book, which is entitled, A Universe From Nothing. He actually literally states, at least the title states, that something came from nothing. And this would appear to uh, challenge the the premise, the first premise of your argument. How would you respond to that? Well, I think uh, there are a number of ways to respond. In the first place,
1: we need to understand that any physical theory is comprised of a mathematical core, the equations that are the center of the theory, and then there is a physical interpretation of that theory. And in fact, with respect to quantum mechanics, there are at least 10 different physical interpretations of the mathematical core of that theory. And some of these uh, theories are fully deterministic theories. So it's simply not true that um, quantum mechanics is a proven counterexample to the principle that every uh, event or everything that begins to exist has a cause. Mm. Secondly, the premise is formulated in such a way as to allow for there to be uncaused events. The premise is not every event has a cause, but everything that begins to exist has a cause. That is Ah. to say, things can't come into being without some sort of causal antecedents. But that's perfectly uh, consistent with saying that the time of the decay of a radioactive isotope, for example, is indeterminate. Um, What the premise excludes is that Things, substances can come into being out of nothing. And that leads me to Lawrence Krauss's uh, deliberate misuse of science in this regard. Krauss knows that the word nothing as he uses it is being used equivocally. He does not mean non-being or not anything. What Krauss is talking about is either the quantum vacuum or or quantum mechanical fields, which are quite definitely something. Uh, and so his models do not in any way suggest that it's plausible that the universe could come into being from literally nothing, that is to say, non being. Indeed, when you think about it, Paul, there is no physics of non being, <laughs> physics only applies. The moment the universe begins to exist, so it, it's impossible for there to be a physical explanation of how the universe could originate from nothing. That's a metaphysical question.
0: Perhaps the the, the title—I don't know—maybe the publisher, uh, rather than himself, uh, who knows, thought of the, the the title of the book, "A Universe from Nothing." But nothing doesn't really mean nothing because there is a quantum. You, you spoke of a quantum field, which is something. Yes. I, presume, I don't know if it has mass or not, but presumably there's. Energy. That there's probability waves. Whatever there, there's something going on there, which is not nothing. So exactly. So your your, your premise then premise one would would, would seem therefore to to uh, not be defeated. Um, put it exactly. So long as we understand that premise
1: one expresses a metaphysical principle, uh, I think that it's quite secure uh, and that there is no good reason to doubt its truth. Mm.
0: Uh, another objection, which is one what, what, I, I think has some uh, some plausibility, uh, mm-hmm. unlike perhaps Krauss's one, is your characterization, your conclusion rather. This is not a premise; this is a conclusion. That uh, therefore, ergo, an uncaused personal creator of the universe exists. Um, now, I don't quite get the. It seems a little bit like a non sequitur. I, I, OK, I, I grant that you've established that there is an uncaused cause, a necessary right. being, perhaps. I see that from the contingency of the universe. But to, to describe this God in, in, with all the adjectives that you attribute to it or him, uh, shall we say, is still quite a way, I think, from the God of classical theism, let alone the God of the Abrahamic face, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, mm-hmm. uh, and, and so on. Uh, there seems to be quite a gap. Um, a metaphysical gap or that you haven't quite justified in any detailed way. Um, could you oh. elaborate why, why you think, therefore, uh, the God of Abraham, d- to give it a generic? Yes,
1: ac- actually, I have elaborated this in quite a detailed way in my published work, but this tends to be ignored by people who are just responding on YouTube videos. I go through each of those properties that I mentioned, timeless, spaceless, uncaused, immaterial, enormously powerful, uh, and give philosophical arguments as to why this first uncaused cause must have that property. In particular, and this is very important, I give three independent arguments as to why this cause must be personal so that we're brought not merely to some sort of an impersonal first principle, but to a personal creator of the universe. And so I would refer our listeners today to my book, Reasonable Faith. Um, Look at the chapter on the arguments for God's existence, and you'll find these laid out. Now, in making the transition to the God of the Abrahamic religions, There, I think the argument doesn't take you that far. The argument gives you a kind of generic theism that is common to all of the world's great monotheistic faiths, including deism. Deism would be perfectly consistent with the argument. To move to the Abrahamic faiths, I think we have to look at the person of Jesus of Nazareth and ask ourselves, who was Jesus of Nazareth? Because he claimed to be, the exclusive and decisive revelation of the God of the universe. Uh, And so it will be on that basis, I think, that we will determine whether or not deism or Judaism or Islam or Christianity Mm -hmm. is true. And as you know, as a Christian philosopher, I'm persuaded that uh, Christianity gives us the best account of who the historical person Jesus of Nazareth was.
0: Yeah, and that, that is, of course, as a separate argument from the Kalam cosmological argument, which is to do uh, with the existence of an uncaused cause. The The arguments for uh, and against the uh, who Jesus was, an historical person, uh, are a separate set of considerations and have been yes. investigated by biblical scholarship the last 2,000 years. And uh, m- many historians have concluded that Jesus himself didn't think he was God, for example. But that, that, that's a, a separate uh, issue from this, uh, this argument, it is but, In fact, uh, after I finished my hmm. doctoral work on the Kalam cosmological
1: argument at the University hmm. of Birmingham, under John Hick, we moved to Germany, and I did my doctoral work in theology, under Wolfhard Pollenbach on yes. this very question of the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus. So yes. those two bodies of work complement each other in making a full orbed case for the christian faith
0: i think i think that uh, someone might say that y- your 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 arguments you propound for the cosmological uh, argument the climb cosmological argument are are, are very good that they, they, they are they are highly respected um, generate a great deal of interest and have a lot of plausibility, mm. rigorous philosophical. I think the argument for the historical Jesus believed that he was God, for example, and this is a separate issue, but we're not discussing this today, are, are not are not beliefs that are widely held by uh, huh. historians, the historical Jesus, for, for example, E.P. Sanders <laughs> and, and others. Okay, now, you, you and the, said we weren't going to discuss
1: it, but you've just we said something there that I need to respond to. Okay. One of the surprising things that came out of this study at the University of Munich was the realization that the central historical facts that undergird the inference to Jesus' resurrection are, in fact, agreed upon by the wide majority of New Testament critics today. And these would be the honorable burial of Jesus by Joseph of Arimathea in a tomb the discovery of the empty tomb by a group of Jesus' women followers on the first day of the week after his crucifixion, the post-mortem appearances of Jesus to various individuals and groups, and then finally, number four, um, the very origin of the disciples' belief that God raised Jesus from the dead despite every predisposition to the contrary. So I think the historical facts are pretty firmly established. The question is, what's the best explanation of those? And there you're quite right in saying that a good many scholars will say, well, that's not for us as historians to speak to. That's a different question. And so they will remain agnostic about it.
0: Wasn't referring to the resurrection uh, at all. I I mean, I was talking about Christology, the understanding who the person and nature of of Jesus. And my impression—I could be wrong—and the reason I mention this is to the 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 rigour, the philosophical rigour of your the Kalām argument that, as you articulated, is very strong. I think, but to to, to, to couple that uh, as if they had equal. Um, uh, probative um, strength with a, a, a claim that Jesus uh, claimed to be God I'm not talking about the resurrection God it, it's something I don't find in in, his, uh, in mainstream historical research at all, in fact the, the consensus is, as I understand it is that Jesus understood himself to be a prophet, an eschatological prophet, that seems to be the overwhelming consensus of scholars, rather than uh, the second person of a trinity and so on, the argument about the resurrection is a separate issue to do with an historical event which the historical critical method as you know better than i is not really able to address because how do you address a supernatural uh you may think there are very good arguments for it oh. by the way but 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 the the point i'm making is uh your initial claim that jesus uh thought he was god or was god uh the, the god that you, that the cosmological argument points to and i i think one argument is much stronger than the other uh, in terms of the academic work that I've looked at? Well, I would invite readers again
1: to read what I've written on this. Um, this uh, I published my doctoral work that was done at Munich. I think it's rigorous. Uh, and I don't claim that Jesus uh, claimed to be God. What I argue is that Jesus claimed to be the Jewish Messiah, the Son of God in a unique sense, and the... Son of Man prophesied by the prophet Daniel, uh, and that these radical personal claims were ratified by God's raising him from the dead so that we have good reason to believe that Jesus is, in fact, God's decisive revelation to us uh, in human history.
0: Yeah, so the claim that he was uh, believed himself to be a messiah or seen as a messianic figure is is. Is is more uh, widely accepted by historians than the claim yes, that he was God, indeed. or called himself God, or believed himself to be God. I think it's that claim that I, 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 I was surprised to see you uh, putting on the same level as your the very strong. Uh, well, those, class. those
1: were your words, Paul. I didn't say that. Um, okay. I, I apologize what you I said was you. that we have good reason to believe that Jesus is the decisive revelation of God to us. And I think that's on the basis of the personal claims I mentioned, and then God's raising him from the dead. Um, um and I, I I think that this excludes looking at Jesus as merely a human prophet, in okay. my no, opinion.
0: That, that, that's, we're always not here to debate that, but I thank you for your clarification of exactly sure. what you, you, you do believe. That's extremely useful. Uh, on the subject of very useful things i, I have looked at the uh, the stanford encyclopedia of philosophy the online uh, article on the cosmological argument because there isn't a thing called the cosmological argument i've discovered it's actually that's more like a type of argument and there are yes. many discrete variants uh, or instantiations or manifestations of this uh argument of this type anyway the stanford encyclopedia of philosophy online has a very useful article i think uh, discussion of how the argument developed from plato and aristotle through Al Ghazali, who we mentioned hume of course and kant had a great deal to write about it up to the lively contemporary debate to which dr craig has made such a seminal uh, contribution so i i do i don't know what you recommend that or not but i thought it was a a very very uh, helpful article and you just google the stanford en- philosophy so and it mentions you many times of course so um well thank you for that. perhaps moving on to the, uh, the our second subject for discussion and this is your latest book uh published just last year um entitled um i, I like the title actually in quest of <laughs> the in quest of the historical adam a biblical and scientific exp- the reason i like it is because obviously you're referring um to the, the classic in the quest of the historical Jesus and your exactly very good Paul I'm glad you picked uh, out on that that that, that is a, a um, an interesting um, reference there to to that and I like I like that anyway in in this book which I confess I, I have not read but I, uh, so apologies for that um, where you set out uh, I'm told you set out to answer the questions about Adam now this is the first human being of course through a detailed biblical and scientific investigation so I think a really important place to begin uh, our discussion is to understand the scriptural basis of this. And um, obviously, Adam is referred to the beginning of the Bible in a book called Genesis, the first book of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he created Adam uh, and Eve. This is found in Genesis 1 to 11. They're usually tr- treated as a, 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 a discrete uh, section like that by scholars. So according to biblical scholar, what kind of literature is it? What kind of genre is Genesis chapters 1 to 11? This is the critical question
1: for the interpretation of these passages. And I argue in the book that these chapters exhibit family resemblances belonging to ancient Near Eastern and contemporary myths, especially these narratives try to ground the realities and the values of the contemporary author in his society in events of the deep primordial past. This is called etiology, and the, this motif of etiology permeates these first 11 chapters of Genesis. And yet at the same time, these stories also are structured along a kind of backbone of genealogies, listing historical persons uh, and their descendants which terminate in indisputably uh, historical persons like Abraham. And so I accept the genre analysis uh, called mytho-history. That is to say, these are stories about events and people that really happened, really lived, but it is told in the figurative and colorful and imaginative language of
0: myth. Mm. Well, that's very teasing. Uh, very teasing indeed. And yes. I, 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 just like one thing, I might d- disagree with you on that about the indisputable historicity of Abraham. One of the things that shocked me when I went to university and I, I was asked to write a, an essay on Exodus, you know, Exodus of Israel from Egypt and by Moses, when I was told very clearly by my professors, that the the existence of Moses was far from being an accepted historical reality. And Moses was much later than Abraham. Um, I I think people like Abraham and Moses are usually seen. Now, there there are some have been developments recently where some prominent uh, experts in the field are are now talking about the evidence for Moses existing. And I, I on faith, believe that Abraham existed, of course, but I'm not sure it's an historically established figure in history. Yes, Abraham. That's
1: that's that's a very fair comment. And I think um, if I were to rephrase what I just said, I would say that the genealogies um, terminate in persons who are indisputably presented as historical characters, uh, as opposed to say mythical figures, Uh, Abraham and, and his descendants are not presented as mythological figures, but as real historical persons who give rise to uh, the nation of Israel. So uh, I accept your your correction uh, in in that.
0: That's very gracious. But I I just want to also clarify what elements then of the Genesis story of Adam and Eve, of course, and there are two creation narratives, but presumably you're alluding to the second creation story rather than the first one for your detailed understanding. How much of that is myth, and how much of that is history? And more importantly, how how on earth does one make that that decision? How does one hermeneutically engage the text and say, well, this element, the eating of the of the 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 fruit, uh, is myth. I don't know what you believe on this, but say it is. But the fall itself is history, because the fall itself of Adam and Eve is a prerequisite. It's a really absolute um foundation for christian soteriology uh obviously uh, in, as presented in the new testament that you have a fall and then you have a second adam the second adam yes as Paul him, jesus i mean um so you've got to have that but are you saying that these details of the fruit and the tree and the, the serpent and whatnot are, are not historical and, and myth is that your argument or yes
1: that is my my position i would say that these are mythic images Um, in which the story of the fall is told. So that while there was an Adam and Eve who did commit some sort of sin against God, I think this is told in the dramatic imagery of a tree of good and evil and then a tree of life and a talking snake who seems to be a symbol of evil and so forth. Uh, Mm. And I suggest a number of ways in which one can discern which portions of the narrative are meant to be understood figuratively, and,
0: and which are not. That's really my question. How, how do you make that hermeneutical move? How do you discern mm-hmm. what is and what isn't? So that was really my question. Well, one way would be when the narratives relate things
1: that are explicitly contradictory to what the author of the Pentateuch believes. And a great oh. example of this would be that in chapter one, he presents this image or picture of God as a transcendent creator of the universe. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we have here this transcendent God who creates all of the universe. But in chapters two and three, in the stories of Adam and Eve, you have these very anthropomorphic descriptions of God yeah. as a sort of finite humanoid a deity who is walking in mm-hmm. the garden, who forms Adam out of the dust of the ground, who does surgery on Adam and takes out a rib and makes a woman who is walking in the garden in the cool of the day, calling out to Adam. And this is clearly incompatible with what the Pentateuchal author himself believes about God. And mm-hmm. so I think gives us indication that these Description should be understood as anthropomorphic uh
0: imagery. essentially John Calvin, if I remember rightly, the uh the Reformation uh, scholar and pastor and so on, uh, if I remember right, at least in English, it's, it, it, remarking on this kind of language in the second because there are two creation accounts. People may not know this in Genesis. It's not like there's just one account of God creating Adam and Eve, there are mm-hmm. two accounts and some scholars would say that they are mutually contradictory and you seem to be implying that they are contradictory so you prefer one the earlier rather than not the chronologically earlier i mean chapter one rather than chapter two um but the, calvin seemed to be uh, suggest that god uses language he lisps t- uh, to his children he uses language yeah. that people can understand not sophisticated uh, intellectuals but so-called ordinary people can relate to this. And this was the purpose in using this language, which um, is not to be taken, I I think he is implying, uh, he didn't say this, not to be taken with, you know, scientific precision, perhaps. Yes, that's exactly right. This is the so-called accommodation
1: theory of inspiration. Uh, And that has to be true when you think about it. Even in revealing himself in Hebrew or Greek, God is already accommodating himself to the limits of human language. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's not at all surprising that God would further accommodate himself in um, making things so simple that everyone can understand them and not just philosophers or modern physicists.
0: Yeah, I think, uh, that's, a, that's a huge, uh, huge, really. Uh, but of course, the uh, the, the standard academic uh, understanding of the Pentateuch, which you uh, m- mentioned, is the so-called documentary hypothesis. That in fact we we actually seeing. At least four um, separate, distinct authors. JEPD. Now, I know this has come under some criticism, and there have been some refinements of it. But nevertheless, the fundamentals still seem to be intact in Old Testament studies. The idea that mm-hmm. that Moses is definitely not the author of of Genesis or of Pentateuch at all. The first five books of Moses. I mean, that he didn't actually write them. And indeed, nowhere in the book does it claim that he did write them. And uh, so, th- he, the point I'm getting at here is not just to mention that. The authorship question is quite interesting uh, that Moses didn't write any of this anyway, it would seem, according to most scholars today, but that the second creation account is written by someone other than the first creation account. And so it's not surprising we had two different people with different outlooks and understandings of creation and God himself, one very transcendent, uh, uh, very uh, uh, very uh, attractive to philosophers. And the second, very anthropomorphic, as you say, w- where God is portrayed in a, as a humanoid figure who gets involved in the, you know, asking, where are you, Adam? And you sort of asking in the call of the day, you know, um, a, a very, very different portrayal. So w- would another way of looking at this be to say we're, we're looking at a scripture which is not entirely harmonious and consistent because of its multiple authorship by different people with different views of God, the Elohist, the priestly, the Yaoist deuteronomist i mean these are these are the technical terms for the four documentary authors of documentary hypothesis would you become i have, toward- a, I have a nice discussion in the book
1: about the sources behind genesis 1 to 11 in terms of both source criticism and form criticism and fortunately with genesis 1 to 11 which is the center of our attention only the j source and the p source come into view. The other two don't even play a role in Genesis 1 to 11, and so can be left aside. And there's no reason or or argument or evidence that these are, in fact, written documents rather than oral traditions, which were then collected uh, and put into the final form by the Pentateuchal author. Uh, And so Uh, I think the final authorship of the book is in one sense really irrelevant. What's important is this pre-literary tradition that gets taken up and put together. And I think you're absolutely right. It, that it's very clear even to the English reader that in Genesis one, you have a different tradition than what you have in Genesis two. And that the Pentateuchal author, uh, juxtaposes these without very much concern about ironing out any sort of inconsistencies uh, between the two. And I think, again, that is characteristic of myth. Um, The authors of myth are not terribly bothered by logical inconsistencies or fantastic elements um, because that's not the main point that they're trying to make. The only thing I would add here, though, Paul, is I would follow uh, the commentator Klaus Vestemann in saying that what we have in Genesis 2 is not a second creation account. Genesis 2 contains nothing about the creation of the heavens, the sun, and the moon, and the stars. Rather, it's a, it's a story about the origin of humanity, and as such, it resembles other ancient Near Eastern Mesopotamian myths about humanity and how it came to be. So I think in Genesis 1, you do have a creation story, and then in Genesis 2, the focus radically narrows uh, down to the earth, and you have a
0: story about the origin of humanity. Yeah, no, I think that, that, that's a fair, fair comment. Um, now, moving, changing gear slightly, and I've looked at the, the genre question, which is actually a fascinating area of, of, of study according to Biblical scholarship. Um, you, you assert, and, and uh, I understand why you do that. Adam was an historical individual. He, he reappears in the New Testament, of course. Uh, he, he's mentioned on the lips of Jesus in the uh, in the Gospels. Uh, mentioned by Paul and so on. So you know, we, we are constrained to accept his historicity if we are to take this uh, this scripture with great seriousness. But the right. question is, um, when did he live? uh and and and, th- and, th- and this this kind of goes into the whole issue of contemporary scientific accounts of human evolution so we're looking at when did he live uh and we we're going now into archaeology we're going into genetics or whatever it is you propose we use as a way of determining the age of the human race that we as contemporary people are physically descended from we're sons of adam literally uh, i i think so could can you j- just explain how you connect this up with yes we lived and and the contemporary scientific accounts of human evolution yes the question of when
1: humanity originated on this planet is a scientific question not a biblical question and i think we can first set up some very broad parameters i i think that when you get to the beautiful cave paintings for example in france at chauvet and lascaux These are clearly the products of human artists. They are Mm. beautiful, breathtaking uh, images so that at least by this time, humanity is uh, is already there. On the other hand, if you push far back into the past, I think when you get to Homo erectus a million years or so ago, Mm -hmm. then you're dealing with hominins who have a brain case that is too small to support modern human consciousness. So that sometime in this window between Homo erectus, and these beautiful cave paintings, humanity originated. Now, what I try to do in the book is to close that window more tightly to determine Mm -hmm. the time at which um, Adam and Eve existed. And what I point out is that we are looking for people like us in the past, when did people like us first make their appearance? Mm. And that will involve not simply anatomical similarity to us, right. but more importantly, cognitive behaviors mm. that we exhibit. And the um, anthropologists Sally McBrady and Allison Brooks list four of these modern cognitive behaviors, including things like planning depth, abstract thinking. Technological innovation and symbolic thinking. Now, obviously, those are intangible. We we, we can't detect them. It's going
0: to some wonderful criteria, but how on earth do you connect that with the archaeological... Yes. Well, Bradley uh, and Brooks say is that we have to look for what they
1: call archaeological signatures right. of these modern cognitive behaviors, and so they list around two dozen of these archaeological signatures that give evidence for symbolic thinking or technological innovativeness or planning for the future and it is stunning how deep into the past these archaeological signatures go on the basis of these i argue that humanity did not originate with homo sapiens That, in fact, Neanderthals and their descendants, Denisovans, were equally human uh, with Homo sapiens, that they also exhibited these modern cognitive behaviors. And therefore, the origin of humanity must go back even further to at least the last common ancestor of Homo sapiens and Neanderthals. And this is the so-called Homo heidelbergensis
0: or Mm -hmm. Heidelberg man who yeah, had was, a brain was some, there was some guy called heidelberg who was, was, it, was it a german guy who discovered this was he i, I don't know but, well it's named after the
1: city of heidelberg uh, where it? the jaw of this um, hominin was first found oh. um and then since then it's been found in various places around the world Uh, And so this suggests that humanity originated somewhere around 750,000 years ago. Uh, We don't know exactly where, perhaps in the Middle East, perhaps in Africa. Uh, But then from then, it spread into Africa, where it evolved into Homo sapiens, and into Europe, where it evolved into Neanderthals and Denisovans. So so that we all are of this common human family.
0: Yeah, so this is very interesting. You said something, because I haven't read the book. I, I, I confess I have ordered it, by the way, It's arriving tomorrow, <laughs> after the interview, not before, but hey, that's, that's the way it is. Um, I, I'm fascinated by what you just said there. I wasn't expecting you to say this. You said that it looks as if humanity had their origin in the Middle East, not in Africa, because the prevailing popular perception, uh, it may not be based on the latest research, of course, is that we all came out of Africa. But you're saying the Middle East and then went into Africa that I was very surprised to hear that. Yeah, that that is an option. Uh, the famous
1: out of Africa migration is talking about the migration of Homo sapiens out of Africa into right. Europe and the Middle East. But that's far too late. Um, I've already pushed the origin of humanity back to the last common ancestor of Neanderthals and Homo sapiens. Mm. Uh, And that could have been in the Middle East, it could have been elsewhere, and then Mm. these Homo heidelbergensis migrated to these other areas where geographically isolated from one another they evolved into these different human species.
0: Right. My my kind of next question, is going to bring in the Quran here uh, as a Muslim, but I'll just mention this. Mm. But in the Quran... um, it talks about a, a Adam being a special creation of God okay and this is like non-negotiable really for for, for many people I've sp- spoken to um, you know you, you can believe in evolution you can believe in macro evolution of uh, other species but the red line the line in the sand is Adam is a special creation of God because he is spoken of in those terms interestingly in the in the Genesis account we have a similar kind of story where Adam is also a special creation. But what I mean by that, I mean a supernatural, miraculous creation by God, ex nihilo. Perhaps on the analogy, and and the Quran itself gives this analogy, of Jesus, Jesus being born of a virgin, his conception is holy without male input, shall we say. Um, It's a miraculous thing. So scientifically, of course, that that, that can't be accounted for. But that's okay, because it's a miracle. Uh, In the same way, the creation of... Adam is also analogously, and the analogy is drawn in the uh, Quran, with Adam. So my question to you is, where do you fit into, do do you identify with this spectrum of views? Do you posit an Adam who was supernaturally created by God, as it says in Genesis, or do you have a more, a different understanding of the trajectory of the evolution of hominid forms that became something else?
1: My book leaves this an open question. The... The question that I'm interested in is when did humanity originate on this planet, uh, not how? So in the book, I assume, for the sake of argument, the standard evolutionary account and try to show how the existence of a historical Adam and Eve as a founding pair of the human race is consistent with what we know from uh, modern paleoanthropology and evolutionary theory. But if someone wants to say, well, these original uh, members of Homo Heidelbergensis were created uh, out of the dust of the earth, miraculously by God, uh, he's certainly open uh, to believe that. Um, m- my, my theory doesn't um, take a position on that.
0: Okay, that, that's fair. You're, you're agnostic on that. For that, that's fine. It just seems to me that the the biblical scriptures require that, or at least state that, uh, in pretty ambiguous terms. Um, well, I, I-, I would say, Paul, that that's
1: only true if you read these narratives in a literalistic way. But if I'm right that this is mytho history and not to be read literally, I think it's quite consistent with the creation story in Genesis 2 where God forms Adam out of the dust of the earth and breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, that Mm. this is a figurative image for God taking a pre-human hominin and elevating it to the status of full humanity by infusing a rational soul into this form.
0: Right. So if there was uh, an account of the supernatural dimension in what you've just said, it would be the, as you put it, the infusion of a supernatural soul into yes. this. Yes. Uh, it- and there may have been a biological,
1: there might have been a biological miracle involved as well. Maybe a systemic genetic mutation that would uh, enable this hominin to support the capacities of a rational soul. But yes, as as a dualist, Who thinks that we're more than just bags of chemicals on bones that we have souls? That would definitely be a supernatural element—the infusion of a rational soul.
0: Right. So you're a Christian. Obviously, you're a dualist. Uh, I'm I'm also. I'm an idealist, philosophically speaking. So it's very similar to that. There has to be some uh, top-down input, if you like, as well as a a bottom-up input in terms of the 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 end product. If I can use that crude language, you would accept that, obviously. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Um, well, I think um, that, that I, I've come to the, the end of my uh, questions and you've been very generous in, in um, hearing my questions and my pushback on one or two points. It's a very kind of you and um uh, you are a prolific author uh, i was uh, a, a very impressed to see a very very long list of books i wouldn't begin to recite the the litany of works you've done but do you have dare i ask do you have any further projects in mind or, or have, is this exhausted your, your, oh. your effort? <laughs>
1: <laughs> i have not exhausted my research at all i okay. have now embarked okay. upon my greatest project, which is to write a multi-volume systematic philosophical theology. Wow. I'm anticipating that this will take about 10 years to complete. Wow. I have finished the first volume, which is on doctrine of Scripture, doctrine of faith, and doctrine of God, mm-hmm. and I am now commencing the second volume and currently working on the doctrine of the Trinity, which I think you would find very interesting. Um, so. I am having a great deal of fun doing this. It is tremendous challenge, but I'm learning so much every week, uh, deepening my understanding of philosophical theology, and uh, therefore really, really enjoying this great project.
0: Well, that's I, i'm i'm glad i asked because that's an extraordinary piece of news so you're very much in the tradition of thomas aquinas his summers you know the Summa theologica and the, uh, the Summa the gentiles john calvin and in his great uh, work as well and you're kind of in this tradition of systematic theologians even or systematic philosophers yeah so this is the the, the the summer of william lane craig that's what i've been known <laughs> in, in, in history okay um uh, people by the way can uh explore dr craig's library of writings videos and podcasts on his website which is called reasonablefaith.org reasonablefaith.org where i think there's this huge library and of course you have a youtube channel or two i think and Mm, yes um you you're found all over the place actually so but um I, I do just mention again the stanford encyclopedia of philosophy online article on the cosmological i was i was just found it so so helpful in really clarifying the the history and the the debates of this i think it's a perennially perennially interesting argument and i think it yes. works yeah and um credit to you sir for keeping this very much uh, in the public uh, mind uh, and um it's, it's been i think i think your presentation of it has been the, the the most published and argued about presentation of the argument uh in in recent decades it it's been very, very w- well argued about um is there anything in in conclusion uh, by the way you'd like to say about either of these subjects uh, to, to our viewers before we close
1: Well, only that if there are some of our listeners who are not yet uh, believers, I want to encourage them to look at the evidence because I believe that um, the best uh, and most plausible um, view of reality is Christian theism. And I would simply encourage them to look at the evidence and arguments with an open mind and an open heart.
0: Okay, that's uh, fair enough. Yeah, I certainly would encourage people to look at all the evidence with an open mind and open heart, whatever conclusions they reach. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. William Lane Craig, for your time and your expertise and your good humor. And um, I'm very much looking forward to reading your book on the quest for the historical Adam. I'm sure there's going to be much uh, uh, of interest in that and your and your forthcoming summa, as I'm now going to call it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, uh, because that's what it is it sounds like so uh thank you very much for your time, sir. well thank you paul and
1: the lord bless you and you too until next time